Welcome to the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Richie Brock. And in today's edition of the Sword and Staff, we're going to be diving into the third installment of our Spiritual Beings of the Bible series. And today in particular, we're going to be discussing the topic of cryptids, such as fairies, elves, Loch Ness Monster, Mothman, and <laughs> many others. So today's episode should be interesting, I think, to say the least. Richie, how how are you feeling about today's episode? Uh, it's It's definitely going to be a good one. I yeah. know the past few days we've been kind of digging in a little bit deeper than what we were originally planned. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it should be really interesting. So if you're listening in today, make sure that you become a patron to get the full uncut version of what we're going to be discussing here today. You can become a patron for just five bucks a month and get the sword and staff uncut. And you can find that at www.patreon.com backslash sword and staff order. So to get into today's topic, to begin we're just going to take a moment to kind of set up the episode for us. And we're going to do that by going back and visiting some of the content that we've already discussed in our previous spiritual beings episodes so far. And we're going to do that by looking at Genesis chapter six, and we're going to examine the stories there to get today's conversation started. So in Genesis chapter six, uh, which we've already discussed in the two previous episodes that we've done on spiritual beings, but in Genesis chapter 6, we find the flood story, right? Um, yep. but not only do we find the beginning of the flood story, but we also find what we've been referring to as the sons of God, daughters of man, Nephilim story as well, right? And so um, in Genesis chapter 6, we see that it says, when man began to multiply, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or the giants, were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So this is the story that we've been talking about, right? Over the past yep. weeks, um, as we've been doing our spiritual being series. And we, we learn in this passage, not just the, uh, you know, the, the Nephilim thing, but, but basically what's going on here is we learn that um, the sons of God, these spiritual beings, right? These angelic spiritual beings, which we've talked about in previous episodes, we learn that they take the daughters of men to themselves, right? Um, and they take them to be their wives. They go outside of the boundaries that they were created for. Um, many people think that the sons of God being referred to here are the descendants of the godly line of Seth. The problem with that, however, is, is that misses a really important element in this story. The godly line of Seth is not the sons of God. The, the godly line of Seth is found in the righteous Noah, who has found favor in the eyes of the Lord in verse 8. These sons of God are the sons of God who are referred to as such in elsewhere in the scriptures in places like Job, um, which we've, we've discussed in a much fuller way in our first episode of the spiritual beings. Go, so we would recommend that you go back there and that you listen to that. But anyway, Moving forward, so so these sons of God, these angelic beings, they take these daughters of men to belong to them, right? They go outside of their yeah. habitation, uh, it says in Jude, 
They commit sins by going after strange flesh, we read in Jude at the end of the New Testament. And we learn in Scripture that these beings were actually cast out of heaven, right? So in 2 Peter 2.4, we read that they were uh, cast out of heaven. And it says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. So we see that some were cast, cast into to hell, right? And below the earth, right? Um, but we learned that some were also cast out to the earth. Not all of them were cast out to, uh, to hell. And this is actually where the Bible's category, for, uh, this is where the category for elemental spirits comes from. Now, yep. we've talked about elemental spirits before, right, Richie? We, we, we did yep. a whole uh, chin wag where we answered the question, what exactly are elemental spirits? So if you want a fuller explanation of that, we would recommend that you go back to the episode that we did, uh, the chin wag edition that we did on elemental spirits. But we learned that this is where the Bible's category of elemental spirits, this is where it comes from, right? It comes from this event. And elemental spirits basically are these angels that are cast out of heaven during this Genesis 6 event. And in the Enochian uh, Second Temple period uh, tradition, uh, we learn that they take on the elements that they land in, right? Um, yep. Now, in some passages, like Colossians 2, 2 through 8, uh, we learn that there are evil elemental spirits, right? Um, so in, uh, actually, I'll read verse 8. Uh, there, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.8 warned the Colossians that no one take them captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to, he says, the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, right? So he's warning people from in the Greco-Roman world not to go back to appeasing elemental spirits. Do not go back to the human traditions, the pagan philosophies that you came from, Right. These are right. evil beings that you do not want to uh, go back to, right? Because if you do that, then you are abandoning Christ. Um, so we've talked about that a little bit in fuller detail. Um, we learn in Galatians 4.3, um, also 4.3 and Galatians 3.19, that there are also good elemental spirits. So in Galatians 4.3, we learn that uh, Paul is having a discussion uh, with some of the Jews who were in uh, Galatia. Well, so there were Jews in Galatia, and there were also Gentiles in Galatia. But um, they're having a conversation about the law and how that relates to believers. And basically, he tells the believers there that they were under the law as a guardian until the date set by the Father. Um, he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So basically, he is also referring to, uh, he, it's interesting, he says that those who were under the law were enslaved by elementary spirits or elemental principles, yep. right? And what he's really referring to here is back in Galatians 3.19. And so in Galatians 3.19, Paul shows his hand here a little bit, and he talks about the law and the nature of it when it was given, right? So he talks about, he says, why was the law given? He says, well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come. So it's similar similar conversation, right? He talks about you were under the law, 
until the offspring came, born, born of the virgin. And he says that the reason why it was given was because of transgression, because of unrighteousness. And it was given, he says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place, get this, through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary replies, uh, implies more than one, but God is one. So basically what he's saying is that God used uh, angels or good elementals um, for the purposes of acting as intermediaries in giving the law to Moses, right? Um, the, the term elemental spirits is clearly used in Galatians 4.3. And we see the theme, the relation of theme between Galatians 4.3 and Galatians 3.19. Again, we've talked about this in fuller detail in another episode, but I wanted to bring some yeah. of that back up today and kind of talk about that a little bit to set the stage for us today. Okay, so, so we see here evil elementals, good elementals, some that are in rebellion to God. They've left their proper dwelling and sought after strange flesh. Some, though, however... Um, are still faithful to God, still loyal to God, and are working on his behalf, right? So we see that specifically in the giving of the law. Okay. So Richie, you got anything you, you want to say before we move in? No, I'm good. Okay. All right. So we see actually, and this is where things are about to get really interesting, I think, um, this biblical category of elemental spirits actually gets tied in to cryptid lore and mythological lore in other places in the world. Now, there's possibly a few reasons why. Um, the Indo-European world, all oh, they had very similar cosmologies and stuff like that. But it, I think that the main reason is because of the topic of what has been called universal history. And so universal history is basically this attempt for places in the world to tie their own history back to significant and important stories in history. So I'm going to give you one example of that. We're going to give you one example of that in today's episode. And this is going yeah. to be the, um, this is going to be the, this is going to be Celtic history or Irish history, right? And Richie, both of us come from, uh, we had ancestors who were Irish, uh, yeah. who come from the British Isles. So this is something that we've spent quite a bit of time uh, investigating over the past few years, right? And gotten yeah. deeper into. Um, but we're going to see this biblical category. Um, we're going to see this tied into uh, Celtic lore. So, so here's the story of the Celts or the Irish. And you'll see here in a minute how all this stuff is going to tie together. Okay. But in Celtic lore, their history connected them back to the people of Israel. And here's how. So whenever you look back at Celtic lore, the, the legend is that they were actually, the, the land was actually settled by the granddaughter of Noah. And her name is Caesar, right? So Noah's granddaughter, after the flood, makes her way to the British Isles, and she settles in Ireland, Okay. Now, the interesting thing about that is the legend goes this way. Whenever she and her descendants arrive in this area in Ireland, they encounter this group of giant spirits, giant spirits yeah. called the Fomorians. Okay. Yeah. Now, 
Now, the word Fomorian uh, etymologically actually means, it could mean two things possibly. Um, one is sea raider, and the other is, uh, hold on a second, it's like giant or something like that. So basically, if you put those ideas, it, either way, it doesn't really matter which, it, it depends on if it's Fomorian uh, from the word mare or Fomorian from the word more. But either way, it starts to draw an image, right? Yeah. There are spiritual beings who are the spirits of giants who are from the underworld. That's, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Because crazy. right off, right off the bat, two connection points are made to the biblical story here, right? All the way in the British Isles. Yeah. So the first is you have the granddaughter of Noah who is supposedly coming there and, you know, settling that land. That's one connection point. Okay. The second connection point is you have the spirits of giants there, which ties in again to this Genesis six story that we've been talking about. And it also ties in with the Nephilim or the Rephaim, right? In, in one of our episodes, we talked about the Rephaim. So whenever the Nephilim died, they're not like you and I, right? They are the product of mixing spiritual beings and humans together. And because of that, whenever they die, their spirits do not go to heaven and the day of judgment hasn't come yet. So they don't go to hell either. So they reside on the earth and throughout the old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, they're referred to as the Rephaim or the shades. Another interesting yeah. thing about Fomorians is it can also mean phantom which ties wow. in yep. thematically with shades, right? Um, yep. So, so very similar thing going on here, right? We've got uh, Noah's granddaughter coming into the area and the spirits of the deceased giants enslaving the descendants of Noah. It's like an inversion. It's like an inversion of the biblical story of what's going to happen, yep. right? So, yep. all right. So now what happens in, in the Irish, uh, the Irish folklore and the, the legends there is eventually the Fomorians are challenged by another group of spiritual beings called the Tuatha de Danon. Okay. It's a cool name. <laughs> uh, I said that earlier, yep. my father-in-law looked at me like I had three eyes. Uh, yeah, he's I like, he's like, he's like, to do what? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but the Tuatha de Danon, and this is interesting, uh, really, really interesting. So they come to this land through the air, okay? And whenever they come, they eventually, uh, they, they, the Fomorians become their bitter rivals. And there's battles that happen between them. Um, I'll save you all of the history with, of those battles, but you can find it online. But basically what happens is the Fomorians lose to the Tawatha. Okay. And what happens is, you know, they're, they're vanquished. And then the Tawatha de Danon, which get this Tawatha de Danon means the children of God, the God Danon. Yep. That's what Tawatha day. So Tuatha is children day is God and Danon is the name of the God. So these are people who are claiming to be the children of God, which 
thematically relates to yep. the sons of God in Genesis chapter six, right? Exactly. <laughs> yep. So you have the sons of God come and they push out the spirits of the, uh, of the giants, uh, right? And now they kind of become the gods in this area, the deities of this area. Okay. Now to, to push this further along here a little bit, um, another thing that happens is after this, um, the ancestors of what is now the modern day uh, Irish, the Gales, the, the Celts, right? They, they eventually, uh, they're, they're in the land and eventually they go to war with the, uh, the, uh, the Tuatha. Um, it's interesting. The Tuatha are said to have been these great culture makers, right? Yep. The cultural heroes, they actually bring culture to this area. So they bring, it specifically says, there's actually a, a poem out there. Um, I'll have to find it. I'll try to find it by the end of the episode. But there's a poem out there um, that talks about that they brought um, the arts, they brought architecture to Ireland, and that they brought magic, specifically yep. things like necromancy. This is exactly yep. like it's it's literally an Irish version of the Watcher story. Spot on, yeah. Right, like you've got to ask the question: How does this Watcher story get get out to to Ireland? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, so you're going to see how this ties into to uh, elemental uh, cryptids here in just a moment. I know you guys are like, you guys haven't even mentioned cryptids yet. Because <laughs> we've got to lay the foundation. We're getting there. We're getting there. Okay. Um, this is just to kind of give you an example of how this all, uh, how all these threads end up coming together. So anyway, um, so you've got the, the culture makers, the Tuatha. They, bring, they, they create call it, uh, culture there. And then they go to war with the, the Celts, you know, the Gales. And the Gales vanquish them. And what happens is they actually make a covenant and or an agreement with one another. And get this, um, the, they, they decide, the Gales and their gods decide that they're going to take the earth, right, the land, and that the Tuatha uh, are going to take the underworld. They're going to take the, the realm beneath the earth, specifically the fields uh, the flower fields and the fairy forts and the fairy mounds that are still in yep. Ireland today. Okay. Now that's really, really interesting. So basically what we've got going on here is that this is uh, you, you have this category of elemental spirit taking on uh, this, these elements in this, history of of ireland okay so basically what what the 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 irish believed is they actually believed this story so i actually have an entry here from it's called the uh, the ancient legends mystic charms and superstitions of ireland it's from 1888 and it's by a woman named lady jane francesca wilde and i want you to listen to what she has to say about how uh how they viewed all of this so um before I do that, though, let me back up because I just missed something. <laughs> so, uh, so I made the connection there. I said that the Tuatha, they take the fairy forts, right? The fairy circles and all that. Well, yeah. what happens is the Tuatha, their ancestors become the fairies in Ireland. Important connection point. Yeah. Important connection point. Okay. So 
what happened was, is now, now to go back to this quote by Lady Jane Francesca Wilde, she says this, the Islanders, like all the Irish, believe that the fairies, get this, are the fallen angels who were cast down by the Lord God out of heaven for their sinful pride. Some fell into the sea, some on the dry land, some fell deep down into hell. So the Irish, whenever they're looking back at this story and they see uh, elemental spirits like uh, fairies, right? And they have all kinds, they have all kinds of categories for elemental spirits, right? There's, there's earth elementals, which are things like you know, fairies and leprechauns, right? And then there's water elementals, and that's things like sirens, you know, mermaids, there's fire elementals with salamanders, dragons, you know, air elementals as well. Um, but whenever they looked at these elementals, they looked at it through this lens that we see also in the biblical story. They saw that these beings, the Tuatha de Danon, who would become the forebearers of the fairies in their land, they, that they come from the fallen angels who are cast out by the Lord in this Genesis six event. Yeah. That's, that's wild, right? It is. That's yep. wild. That's, that's crazy. Um, so, so this is an example of how this biblical category of elemental spirits, how it gets tied into to cryptid lore, right? So one of the ways, so like, so for example, if you go out and you look at cryptids, some of the main ones that'll pop up are things like, you know, sirens, right? Or, or mermaids or elves, right? Yeah. Like there's tons and tons of stories from all over the place about these types of beings, right? And so, yeah. So this is one of the ways. Now, that's not the only place that we see this happening. Now, we, we also see similar lore in other places out there as well. And like one of the examples of those is Greek lore, right? So in Greek lore, you've got things like centaurs and you've got satyrs uh satyrs if you don't know what a satyr is it's like a being that's like half man half like yeah. donkey or you know goat or something like that and then you know you've also got sirens right so i mean think about like homer's odyssey like that's a huge huge hugely famous and classic uh work from the greeks right and in homer's odyssey when odysseus and his men sail past the island where the sirens reside uh, they have to be very careful, right? Because sirens were known for wooing men by singing songs, which would lead to their demise, right? Yeah. All of these yeah. ancient worldviews, here's the point. This is how this is going to tie together. All of these ancient worldviews in the ancient world, whether they be in the ancient Near East, whether they be in the British Isles, all of them had a category for elemental spirits. And it was all tied back to this giant you know, Genesis six stuff. Yep. Okay. So, um, and the way that these elemental spirits take, take on, um, characteristics or embodiment, it seems like in these stories is dependent upon where they land, right? Whether they're cast out to the underworld or whether they're cast out uh, to the earth. Like, so in Greek mythology, you know, some of them take on uh, their water elementals, right? And you see them in the form of things like sirens, right? Uh, some of them land on land and you see them take on the form of uh, satyrs, right? Pan, yep. for example, one of the Greek gods uh, is a satyr, right? Right. Um, 
And, you know, in Celtic lore, you know, you, they, they take on the form of fairies, leprechauns, things like that. Um, all of these beings are elemental spirits taking on embodiment in these elements. Okay. Now, now this might shock people. Um, these types of beings also appear in Israelite biblical religion as well. They do. Yeah. So the Bible actually makes mention of these beings as well. So for example, um, in Isaiah chapter 13 in verse 22, um, there's some debate on what a word is there, but some of these translations actually make a nod at this. So a little context, this passage is an oracle made about Babylon. Right, Israel is going to go into captivity in Babylon, and Babylon is eventually going to be taken over by the Persians, you know, that entire thing. And so in Isaiah 13, there is a prophecy about Babylon. And about Babylon, here's what the uh, Targum, uh, which was, I think, the Aramaic version of the Old Testament, here's what it says. It says, sirens shall answer in their, pla- in their palaces and jackals in the temple of their pleasures. Her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged anymore. So whenever it's talking about this place, Babylon, it talks about there being sirens there, right? Yep. And an interesting thing is Jerome, St. Jerome, his Latin Vulgate also makes mentions of sirens as well. Now, the... now. Here's another, here's a a difference here. Um, The Greek Septuagint, um, which actually has the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament that we actually currently have today. It has a different word there. It's not sirens, but here's what the Septuagint says. It says, and satyrs shall dwell there, and hedgehogs shall make their nest in their houses. It will come soon and will not tarry. So it mentions a different quote unquote mythological being. Yep. Right? A satyr. Uh, another version of, of that can also be rendered as uh the the uh the Orthodox study Bible says it this way. It says donkey centaurs will dwell there. Right? Now that sounds yep. out there, but it's the same thing as a satyr, right? Yep. Uh, a centaur is it's it's you know donkey centaur is basically the same thing as a satyr. Um, it's this being that's, uh, you know, half and half, right? Which is really yeah. the same thing that a siren is. Yeah. You know, a siren is a female who's also like half fish, right? Um, now, the King James, which uh, everybody knows, right? Interestingly enough, it says dragons there. Now, you may be saying like, okay, well, well that's what's going on there. Well, what's going on here is... The Bible is using this terminology for spiritual beings, yeah. right? For elemental spirits. You got anything you want to add to that? No, I'm good. I'm just listening right along. This is good stuff. Okay. Well, you know, some translations there say uh, like jekylls, you know, things like that. But the problem with that is, is the Hebrew word that's actually used there doesn't actually mean jekylls. The Hebrew word there is tanim or tannin. And tannin actually appears in other texts out there in the ancient Near East. And tannin actually, one of the places that it appears is what's called the Baal cycle. 
and tannin appears in the bell cycle and in the bell cycle tannin is a servant of a spiritual being called yam that defeated Baal and bound his sister in that. And so he's usually depicted in this religion, in, in the, the Baal cycle, as serpentine, dragon-like, right? Uh, the word tannin is also used in the Hebrew Bible 14 times. So Aaron's staff in Exodus, whenever he throws it down, it becomes a what? It becomes a serpent, right? That word used there in Exodus 7, 9 through 12 is the same Hebrew word, tannin, right? Uh, it, it also yeah. appears in several other places. So, it, you know, the Bible's trying to, or some translators of the Bible are trying to get around the supernatural, you know, aspect of the spiritual being there by, you know, making yeah. it seem like it's something not supernatural uh, or it's not some sort of, you know, elemental spirit or something like that. But whenever we look at that word in its historical context and the ways that it's used uh, canonically across the scriptures, it's actually pretty clear that there is something interesting going on here. There is some sort of elemental spirit being spoken of here, whether yep. it be an elemental spirit of the water being a siren, whether it be an elemental spirit of the earth being a satyr or a donkey centaur or a fire donkey elemental, centaur. right? Or being a fire elemental being a dragon. So surprise Elemental spirits are also acknowledged in the Bible, and that shouldn't surprise us because Paul talks about it in the New Testament. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That shouldn't that shouldn't be a surprise if you're listening. Um, but most people don't know that, right? They don't. And now, Richie, you pointed something out to me, and you can talk about this a little bit. But Israel actually has statues dedicated to sirens in their yep. land, right? <clears throat> yeah. You pointed this out. In, to me. Yeah, in the town uh, Kiryat Yam, they have. Uh, a monument, a statue that they've dedicated to the the multitudes of siren and mermaid type sightings that have been occurring in the region for hundreds, even maybe thousands of years. There's always been uh, tales of uh, mermaids, sirens, elemental water spirits seen in the area. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I didn't know that. You sent that to me this week after we were, you know, reading up and studying on yeah. some of this. But you know, this stuff isn't foreign. To, it shouldn't be foreign to our worldview, right? Um, it's in the scriptures. It's not just mentioned in the Old Testament or in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul, but it, we also see it in some of the places uh, that we talked about today as well in the Old Testament. And in Israel, I mean, some of this stuff is still seen there. And there's, you know, statues to commemorate some of it, right? Yep. Um, so that might be a surprise to some of you. Um, but it shouldn't be. Um, now, I think that one of the, the tendencies for people um, is they want to read texts like this and they're saying, well, it's, it's referring to mythological beings, right? Mythological beings that we, we, that we actually know don't exist, right? Because there's, never, there's no evidence for them, right? Yeah. But I want to pose a question. Should there be evidence for a spiritual being? Should you find the deceased body of a siren in the water? Should you find the body of a satyr in the Greco-Roman world somewhere? The Bible makes it clear that these are spiritual beings, right? Yep. And not You're only right. does the Bible make it clear, but even some of the cultures surrounding Israel and the ancient Near East, like the Irish, the Celts, they make it clear that these beings are spiritual beings, right? They knew that the yep. fairies and the leprechauns 
you're, you're not going to just go out there and find a leprechaun body somewhere at the end of a rainbow. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, they, they connected them back to the Tawatha Day. And the Tawatha Day, they say, I didn't mean to rhyme that, but it just happened. Um, but the Tawatha Day. Rhyming on the spot. Rhyming on the spot. That's what I do. I'm a pastor and a poet. Um, there we go. But anyway, um, what happens is they're connecting the Tawatha back to the angels who fall in this Genesis 6 event. Right? Yep. So we shouldn't be surprised that this stuff finds its way into the Bible and that the world rejects the existence of beings like this, right? The world is, is materialistic, right? Most of the world doesn't believe in things that it can't verify with the senses. If they can't touch it, if they can't smell it, if they can't taste it, if they can't hear it, then it doesn't exist. But that's not the Bible's worldview. And that's not the worldview of our ancestors. And so we shouldn't be surprised that these things are in the scriptures. We shouldn't be surprised that this is the worldview of the ancient peoples. They were not materialists, right? And so now to kind of move us forward here a little bit, and I, I suspect that this will give you a whole lot to talk about because you've studied this area a lot more than I have. Uh, and you're, I, I'm basically just here to talk, talk about the Bible stuff. You're here to talk <laughs> about some of the, the paranormal investigative side of things. Um, but we see similar categories whenever we talk about things like cryptozoology, which is the study right. of cryptids, right? Um, so I'll, I'll set it up this way, and we can talk about some of these a little bit more and some of them that you've particularly studied. Um, but whenever we look at cryptozoology, it's usually divided up into these similar categories, right? You have <clears throat> air cryptids, things like the Mothman, which we're going to talk about in the uncut yeah. section of today's uh, podcast. And then things like the Jersey devil. I remember that game whenever I played PlayStation when I was a kid, <laughs> the really awesome game. Um, yeah. And then, but there are earth cryptids out there as well. Things like the Flatwoods monster, which again, we're going to talk about in today's episode. Um, but also things like Bigfoot, Yetis, Skinwalkers. Uh, there are water cryptids out there, which are, again, things like mermaids, Loch Ness Monster, which everybody's heard of, and um, the Kraken, right, from Pirates of the Caribbean, right? These right. creatures have similar characteristics as these spiritual beings. So let's have a conversation about some of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've done some study on some of these types of cryptids, right? Specifically, I'll start us off with the fairies, right? I remember whenever we first you know, started talking, you were talking to me about the fae and fairy forts and fairy circles. I'm like, what the heck is this? And then you start talking <laughs> about how there's similar phenomena linked to these things like that you see in like UFO phenomena. So talk about that maybe a little bit. You know, it's, it, it's a common theme throughout the ancient world that all of these, all of these, uh, cryptids and mythological creatures were spiritual in nature it's only really a modern construct that that there are some kind of undiscovered animal or monster that really the term cryptid as we know it today really classifies them as yeah well so for example whenever i think of cryptid that's typically what i think about you know a, a an animal that was previously undiscovered or it could be a being or a a, 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 a an animal that was previously thought to be extinct yeah. Right. Which, yeah, that, which is. Yeah, that's mainly the how people frame it today. But 
I, I know they go uh, cryptozoologists today really make it a point to go out of their way to strip away any spiritual aspect away from these creatures, especially post 1900s. So yeah, but that wasn't the view at all of the ancient world. Yeah, no. Whenever, whenever the the Celts looked at things like fairies and and elves and things like that, they knew for sure that they were dealing with spiritual beings. Now they weren't convinced that all of them were bad, but yeah. um, you know, they knew. And so basically, what you're saying is that the modern crypto uh, zoolo- uh, zoological is that even a word that I just yeah, invented? That's it. Put that on no, a that's shirt. Good. But cryptozoological <laughs> view um, is basically materialistic, right? It's approaching this topic. Absolutely. It's approaching, you know, it, I, it's funny. I actually, I even see this in Christian circles. I actually saw this this week uh, doing some research. I, I read an answer from, answer, or a, 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 oh, I gave, my, gave it away there a little bit. I read an article by Answers in Genesis, which is a Christian, you know, Christian organization. I've been to the Ark Encounter. It's got some great stuff there. Um, they do fairly good work. But they had an, uh, a, uh, an article on cryptozoology and cryptids, and I was really unpleased with it. Um, and the reason why is because even though they're, they're Christian, uh, they basically took a uh, materialistic view of these things. You know, basically saying that they're, they're possibly, you know, uh, animals that have not been yet discovered or perhaps that we, they were thought to be, you know, long extinct, etc., and I'm like, you know, it's interesting because whenever you look back at Christian writings, you know, throughout the, the, the medieval era and even before the medieval era, um, and if you look back at the actual source documents themselves, like the Bible or um, the Book of Invasions for uh, the Celts, you know, they knew that these weren't just animals. Oh, absolutely. They knew that they were spiritual beings. So it just, it's, it surprises me in some ways that we as moderns also approach this. It's just, it's a, it's a type of what C.S. Lewis would call uh, chronological snobbery, you know? Yeah. Yep. It's, it's like we look down our noses at our ancestors like they were just uh, imaginative people who just didn't know any better. And the reality is that they did. They just had a worldview that was totally supernatural and was not influenced by materialism the way that ours is, you know. And well, I mean, all it takes is really a look into the details behind a lot of these cryptids to see that a lot of the classifications, a lot of their uh, attributes, are very spiritual in nature. Right. Well, don't you see that with some of the fairy, you know, stuff? Like you've mentioned to me that a lot of the phenomena that accompanies fairy, uh, or you know, uh, a, whenever someone encounters a fairy in the uh like say the woods there's very similar phenomena as in with ufos right absolutely abduction time loss um uh, a sense of being watched paranoia in the woods stuff like that that we see in modern cryptid cases it's all it's all there in the fairy lore yeah i think that you even mentioned to me one time that there's like lights things like that lights in the sky you know accompanying a lot of this and you know that's very similar to some of the things we talked about in the ufo episode right and the reason why is because behind all of this phenomena, we are contending that spiritual beings are behind it. Absolutely. That's the reason why there's similarities in this phenomenon. And it's, you know, you know, I'm thinking one of them in particular that I'm thinking about here is like, uh, I don't know how familiar people are with Skinwalker Ranch, you know, oh boy. Out, out West, but 
it's probably the most paranormal hotspot in the world, you know? And it's interesting because it's a point of definitely the most talked about hotspot going on right now, I'd say. Yeah, I would say so too. And, you know, at Skinwalker Ranch, you have all sorts of phenomena that overlaps there. You know, you have the cryptids, uh, the skinwalkers themselves, uh, which seemingly just phase in and out of existence, right? Like I was listening to a story of, uh, you know, this skinwalker had attacked some cattle that was there on the ranch. Um, and this was documented. I mean, this is a legitimate thing. You could go out there and, and, you know, find documentation about this. It's out there. There's actually a, uh, there's a whole documentary on uh, out there. I think it's on Hulu. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but you can find it out there, but it talks about, you know, there's this, uh, animal, it seems like attacking cattle and, you know, people walk up to it and shoot it with a gun and it's just like, it just doesn't die. And then they, yeah. they start to chase it. And then it just phases out of existence seemingly. Right. And then not right. only that, but you know, there's also UFO phenomena there. There's, there's, you know, uh, all kinds of strange things happening there with, you know, EMFs, right. With the electromagnetic fields. And like, yep. this is all documented things that one simply just can't ignore. So how do we account for it as Christians? Well, we have the categories. We don't need to approach this as materialist or to deny that it's a reality. The Bible gives us the categories. Let's look at it through the lens the Bible gives us, right? Right. You know, there's even modern Christians out there. Well, I say modern, but they're, they're gone now. Like, um, you know, C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien, you know, they they considered themselves to be medievalists and both of them fully embraced the reality that things like elves and fairies could exist. And it's because the reason why they believe that is because they held to a supernatural worldview of the scriptures, right? That they, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the, you know, that's one of the reasons why you see, um, you know, good elves, in Tolkien's work, right? He knows yep. that there are, there are good elemental spirits out there, right? And that they can manifest themselves in this way, you know? It's the reason why Gandalf uh, manifests himself as, you know, uh, or Mithrandir, I should say, manifests himself in the the flesh of Gandalf, right? And he's, he's yep. good. Um, this category is embodied in these works of christians like uh lewis and tolkien and so you know it's not just you and i who are saying that these things um exist right like we most christians throughout history especially throughout the medieval era believe that these things existed and um not only that but they also um they're you know modern christians like them also believe that as well um you told me a story and i wanted to bring that up uh it's a story about the Loch Ness monster. Yeah. Right. That's a famous one, right? Most yep. people may not know about Skinwalker Ranch. Everybody knows about Bigfoot, right? Yep. There's a reason why Bigfoot and Loch Ness monster. Those are the two. If you want to hear about any of them, that, that's going to be it. There's a reason why Bigfoot all of a sudden is there and he's terrorizing people. And then he just disappears into the, you know, the ether. Yeah. Right. Even pagans like John Keel, John Keel was not a Christian, but John Keel, uh, John Keel, if you don't know who John Keel is, uh, he was the man who wrote the Mothman prophecies. He was the man who really brought a lot of the Mothman stuff in Point Pleasant to light uh, back whenever that happened. 
um, he wrote a book on, uh, it was basically his explanation of how this phenomenon works. Um, he called, he said that beings like that, like the Mothman and, you know, Bigfoot or, you know, whatever, um, that these beings, he called them, and we talked about this in the UFO episode. So people go back and listen to that. Uh, he said these beings were ultra terrestrials. And that they, the reason why they, the phenomenon happened the way that it did was because they could phase in and out of what he called the super spectrum, which yeah. is basically, you know, just a fancy word that he came up with, which is saying that they can go from one plane to another. Right. You know? But anyway, I want to bring back up the story about Loch Ness Monster, right? And to show that there is a spiritual nature to, uh, to some of these cryptids, right? Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more with the Mothman in the uncut section. There's yeah. definitely a spiritual aspect to his, the phenomena there, but there's one famous one, uh, with the Loch Ness monster and Aleister Crowley, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, Aleister Crowley, his work in, uh, in Ireland, when he went to the British Isles, one of his focuses was the Loch Ness monster. He made it a point to go to the area actually, and to really study the, the legends and the spiritual aspect of things there. He actually claimed to conjure the spiritual being that we know as the Loch Ness monster there. Yeah. And he actually bought a house on Lake Loch Ness. He did. Loch Ness, Um, which actually Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin bought and said that there was all kinds of paranormal things that happened there. Um, You can go and check that out if you're interested in more than that. But, uh, but it just goes to show that, you know, that these yeah, that's, beings, a whole ep- that's a podcast episode in and of itself. Led Zeppelin and the occult. That's what I was about to say. Gosh, I don't feel like yep. rolling. I definitely don't want to roll back Stairway to Heaven in this one and talk about <laughs> the, messages, the subliminal messages there. So anyway. Let's do it. Um, so anyway, though, uh, but hopefully this goes to show you that, um, that these beings could be summoned through magical practices. Hopefully that goes to show you that there is a magical element to this, that there is an an occultic element to this. There is a spiritual aspect to this. And actually, if you go on YouTube right now, you can actually find out how to summon and interact with elemental spirits. Like I was, I was blown away this week. Like this week I was, again, I was researching and, um, you know, I was, um, you know, looking, looking on what I could find out there about elemental spirits, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but if you go out there and, um, type in, you know, elemental spirits on YouTube, um, you will bring up countless hundreds of videos on how to summon or contact elemental spirits. Like I watched several of them. You know, and it's always tied to occultism, you know, yep. nature, nature or na- like nature worship, which was really what witchcraft is. You know, it's it's really nature worship. It's nature religion. But I mean, you type it in. I mean, you're you're just going you're going to get a crazy amount of videos on how to summon elemental spirits and how to work with them. And that just goes to prove the point that we're making in today's podcast is that these beings are spiritual beings. And that's the Bible's view of them. That's the reason why the Bible mentions elemental spirits. That's the reason why the Bible mentions sirens and satyrs and donkey centaurs in relation to pagan nations, right? Used as symbols for pagan nations. Uh, It's the reason why the 
nations around Israel had categories for this stuff is because they interacted with these beings and they are real. That's the reason why you can't find fossils of a mermaid. Yep. You know? It's the reason why you can't find the, the, the Mothman, uh, his tomb up in Point Pleasant somewhere. It's because these are spiritual beings. So that takes us to takes us to our last section of today's episode, which is, okay, we've laid the foundation. We've talked about Genesis 6. We've talked about universal history and how this ties in and how it gets embodied in the myths, quote unquote, myths and legends. There's a kernel of truth in everything, folks. Absolutely. Uh, how it gets tied into other comparative myths and religions, uh, how it even finds itself in the Bible. We've talked about manifestations of cryptids. Now we need to talk about something I think that's very, very important and something I think it'll be practical. How does the church deal with this? How does the church deal with this? Well, I think number one, and Richie, you can feel free to chime in here at any point. You was actually one of the, you, you actually brought up one of the stories that we're going to talk about here. So maybe you're the right person to tell that. Um, but I think that the number one way to deal with this is that we have to, have to, have to acknowledge the existence of such beings, right? Absolutely. Uh, Unless, unless we drop our materialistic enlightenment worldview and drop our chronological snobbery and accept the Bible's supernatural worldview, we are not going to be able to deal rightly with this stuff. Right. Like somebody comes to you as a pastor, if you're listening and if you're a pastor, and they have an encounter with an elemental spirit. How do you plan on helping them if you reject the existence of such a thing to begin with? How do you counsel that person? I'll tell you how I used to counsel people. I used to look at them and be like, oh, I don't know. You know, are you sure it's not just in your mind? Maybe you should yeah. go see a doctor. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's not, that's not good. That's not a good way. And that's no. not how the Bible deals with this stuff. Listen, when the apostle Paul talked to Greeks who had been making sacrifices to the elemental spirits, which all of these things did, by the way, right? All of these, all of these religions made sacrifices. Like, for example, I'm going to get off track here, but it's okay. It needs to happen. It's all right. Yeah. It's like Samhain, right? Like Samhain. It's dedicated to these, these, these spirits, right? So like, if you don't know what Samhain is, it's a Celtic uh, harvest festival, right? Uh, and it, it right. looks like it's spelled Samhain, right? Yeah. But it's actually not same hand. It's it's Samhain. You know what what the Celts did with this festival was that they they um, they dedicated some of their harvest, their milk, and two thirds of their uh, two thirds of their children to appeasing these beings. Right? I mean, these were beings that they thought were were evil. They enslaved their ancestors, the descendants of Noah. Right. right. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to be unbothered. Right. One of the things that they would do as well is they would wear masks. Right. They would wear masks to try to uh, dis- disguise themselves so that the spirits wouldn't know who they were. Um, 
which we'll talk about a little bit with Halloween. Um, yeah. But uh, it's you know, good. yeah, it should be interesting. Um, but what they would do is they would they would offer up these sacrifices. They would offer up the a part of their harvest for the year. They'd even offer up, sadly, their children. The reason why was to uh, to appease these spirits, these evil spirits, right? And um, it's the the same with some of. The, I don't even remember where I was going with this, but anyway, uh, what was it I was talking about before I went into this? I totally blanked. I'm not sure you just uh, had a rabbit trail. You needed to dive it's, down. It's apparently. all good. I went down this rabbit trail. Uh, it needed to happen. But anyway, it needed to happen. It needed to happen. But it's, you know, that's, uh, the, that's what, what a lot of these people were doing with this. Oh, I remember what I say now. And what Paul does whenever he encounters people who live this type of lifestyle, what he didn't do was say to them, you're crazy. Yep. This doesn't exist. No, whenever he wrote to the Colossians, he tells them in verse 8, see to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then he goes on, down in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open open shame, triumphing over them. Don't don't subject yourself to these things anymore, right? Don't be taken right. captive by the philosophy and the human traditions, the paganism that you were once captive to. Christ has disarmed them. He's disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he's, a put, and he's put them to open shame. That's how to be pastoral dealing with this topic. That's how the apostle Paul himself dealt with this topic. And that's what these people were doing, right? Right. They they believed in elemental spirits. They were making sacrifices to these beings. People still do this with fairy stuff today, right? Uh, absolutely. Like people will you I mean you can talk about that. Like but- actually even here in Appalachia, there there's still an aspect of that. Like I know personally I've seen uh some farmers even around here that will take the uh the first and last sort of additions of their harvest and they'll actually take it to the the borders of the property and the forest lands and they'll leave it. Yep. as sort of like a peace offering to the land or to the elemental spirits in the forest. Yep. Um, you know, I remember, you know, my wife can talk about this, you know, it's passed on from her grandfather to her. Um, whenever you go berry picking and things like that, you know, the rule always was you don't take all of them. You leave right. some behind for, for the others. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I know people who would take, you know, part of their harvest. You know, a lot of it, too, is because, you know, Appalachia has a lot of that uh, Celtic heritage. You know, a lot of people from from Ireland and, you know, that area migrated here. So a lot of that mixed in with the, our Appalachian culture or create, help create our Appalachian culture. Yep. Um, so that's why you no, there's see- definitely a healthy fear and respect of the land of creation oh, here. Absolutely. Yeah. People were people are very um, skeptical of going out into the mountains alone and going outside after dark and, you know, that type Absolutely. of stuff, you know? Um, so, but anyway, so, but whenever the apostle Paul dealt with people who come out of this type of stuff, he didn't just say to them, Jesus exists. And these things don't, you need to just get this out of your mind. Yeah. says, don't, don't subject yourself. You are no longer in bondage to the elemental spirits, right? You are now in Christ. He has disarmed them. Um, 
Paul's as post mill as it can get. <laughs> you know, uh, he's he's don't don't you give yourself over to this anymore. So I think that's part number one. I think that's the first point of application is um, we we have to acknowledge the existence of these things if we're going to be pastoral and if we're going to actually help people. Richie, you and I have been shocked by the amount of people who have come out on this the topic of elemental spirits. Oh, and yeah. who have told us like they've had encounters with them or, you know, they just didn't know how to think about them. Right. This yep. is, this has been a big deal. So, um, I think the next thing that we need to do is follow the example of the church. And we need to deal with the way uh, we need to, to deal with this, the way that the church has historically dealt with this. Richie, you told me a story and I'll let you be the one to tell it, uh, about St. Columba. Yeah, when I first started uh, looking into cryptids, I, even before I had uh, any sort of Christian outlook or take on these things, I heard the story of St. Columba and what people know as Loch Ness Monster. I mean, the church has had a really col- colorful history with uh, spiritual beings like this. I mean, you have, I, I just know know it in brief. I mean, yeah. you looked into it and you read up on it, but uh, St. Columba comes to the the banks of the Loch Ness, of Loch Ness and uh, really calls out the, the elemental spirit there and binds it in the name of Jesus. And yeah. there's a, a man that, sw- uh, I think it was a monk, wasn't it? It was a monk, yeah. Yeah, he swims out and the monster charges the monk. And before the monster reaches the monk, Columba binds and stops the creature. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's basically the story. You know, the interesting thing about that story, and I looked into it, um, that's actually the first, this was in the 500s AD. Yep. So that's when St. Columba lived. Uh, and he went to Scotland and that's where Lake Loch Ness is at in Scotland. So it's, yep. you know, the other, one of the other British Isles there. Um, but he, he goes there and one of the monks is about to be attacked. Um, and he rebukes the Loch Ness monster in the name of Christ. And it stops dead in its tracks. Like it's yep. a spiritual being, right? Um, and that's actually the first recorded uh, testimony that we have of the Loch Ness monster, all the way back to the 500s. This being has been around that long. Yeah, you know. And it's, I mean, and the lock is landlocked, so you, there really is no explanation for the creature surviving to be even spotted in modern times like it is today, if it wasn't a spiritual being. Right, and it also makes sense of why it's also able to be summoned by Aleister Crowley, the occult. <laughs> yeah. You know, yep. it can be rebuked and it can be summoned. It can be rebuked by light and summoned by darkness, you know? And right. so, so to follow the example of St. Columba, um, this is one of the reasons why things like um, blessing uh, is powerful, right? One of the traditional um, practices of the church has always been to, uh, to have your home blessed, right? Um, that's right. not just a, uh, we, I'm sure we have Roman Catholic listeners and this is not a, a slight to our Roman Catholic listeners, um, but this isn't just a Roman Catholic thing. Um, like it's, it's, it's not, uh, this is, this is a Christian thing to come to have some, uh, your pastor or your priest, if you're Catholic, you know, whatever, um, to come and bless your house because space can be profaned, right? I mean, if the Loch Ness Absolutely. monster, 
if the Loch Ness monster is a spiritual being, it's because that space has been profaned or there's an elemental spirit that's landed there. You know what I mean? That kind of thing um, that's taken up residence there and has embodied itself through that, that, uh, that means. Um, and so what happens is the way that St. Columba deals with that is through, uh, through the name of Christ, right? Invoking the name of Christ. Now, why does that work? Well, it's because there's a metaphysical nature to our words. There's a metaphysical nature to our actions. I mean, just think about it. What happens whenever you sin? The kingdom of darkness is manifested, right? I right. mean, it, like, it, like whenever you sin and you do it in secret, right? Whenever people find out what happens, they're hurt. Can can lead to the destruction of your family. Can lead to the loss of jobs, friends, all of those things. Why is that? Because what we do and what we say it manifests manifests one kingdom or the other. This is the reason why the scriptures talk so much about the way that you you talk, right? That you should bless rather than curse, right? I mean, think about that the language like profanity, right? Think about that. What do we call that? What do we call that? It's a curse, right? We, we're cursing someone, right? We are, we are bringing to them intent, focused intent that they would be cursed, that something bad would happen, right? Yep. That's the reason why scripture talks about that there is life in the tongue. Listen, this isn't, no, this isn't new agey talk. This isn't, this isn't word of faith talk. This is historical, traditional Christian talk. There are metaphysics to everything right? That we live in a world that is not just physical. There is more than the words that's just coming out of your mouth. The, uh, we live in a world where the spiritual and the physical overlap, right? And that's the reason why a St. Columba could rebuke a being and it stopped dead in its tracks. This is the reason, folks, if, if you don't take that as evidence, then at least take this. This is the reason why Jesus and his apostles and the church for centuries afterwards could look at someone who had an evil spirit in them, a demon, and say, come out in the name of Christ, and it comes out. Right? This is the reason why things like that can happen, because there is a metaphysical connection between these things. This is the reason how the Lord is even present in the sacraments, right? Um, right. This is how, this is why, you know, this is why the reason why the apostle Paul can say that whenever you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. This isn't just a, this isn't just a play on words. Whenever you were baptized into Christ, what happens is you are identified with Christ in the same way that he went beneath the waters and came out the same way that he went, you know, beneath the earth into the realm of the dead, shamed those spirits that were there, right? Because scriptures teach that he shamed the spirits that, you know, that whole thing that he preached the gospel, it says to, to those who were in chains is what the scriptures talk about. Those who are in chains are the, the spiritual beings we talked about at the beginning of this episode, those angels that were kicked out of heaven and kept in the gloomy chains. Basically what happens is Jesus goes into the realm of death. He says, Hey, you guys are still here but I'm not, I'm about to leave. And then he comes back. That's what we're doing in our baptism, right? It's more than just going into the water, right? It's, it's more, right. uh, more than just going in and, and getting, getting a little bit wet. That's a very materialistic way of viewing this. What's happening, Paul says, is we are being united to Christ. Um, so it's the same thing with our language. 
right? Uh, it's, it's not just the same with our language, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the same with all this stuff with, with blessing spaces and, and all that. This is the reason why, you know, one thing that might be, that might strike this to, to modern listeners are building dedications. That's still something that's still common, even in evangelical circles are building dedications. Like you get a new building, a new church building, and then what do you do? You dedicate to the Lord. Why do you do that? Because there is this assumption below that, this presupposition that you're dedicating it to say, and making it sacred space. But you don't know what it once was. Could have been a bar. Could have been uh, could have been a den for pagans. Uh, actually, the building that our church building uh, yeah. that we're in right now, yeah. the church the church building that we're actually in right now. Actually, at one point in its history, it was a bank. It became a bar after it was after it shut down. And then we had some uh, some tattoo artists who actually lived here in our building, uh, who were who were practicing witches. You know, whenever we yep. came in, there was pagan symbolism just all over the building, and you know things like black salt and you know, things like that to ward off spirits, you know, that kind of stuff. And the very, guess what the very first thing was that we did here? We did a, we dedicated this building to the Lord. Absolutely. Why did we do that? Because it was once profane space, right? Right. And we believe that we believe what the scriptures teach about words that you can bless with the tongue or you can set the world on fire with it. Right. Um, that should cause us to consider the language we use and to to choose our words wisely. So to tie this all back around, this has become a tangent, (laughs) Um, you know, uh, but we should follow the the example of of saints in the church, like St. Columba, who invoke the name of the Lord, who seek to make uh, profane space, sacred space. Um, We should do that with, with the way that he did. Now there's other ways that we can do that as well. Okay. We can certainly do that with our words. We can certainly do that with dedicating our homes to the Lord and having them blessed. We can do it. Um, we can do it as well by dedicating our buildings to the Lord in that way. But another way that we can do it as well is by taking back space that used to be profane space and making it sacred space once again. All right. I'm going to tell a story. It's the story of St. Boniface and the Oak of Thor. Back, uh, you know, a long time ago, back in, I think it was the 700s, so this is a few years, 100 years after St. Columba, St. Boniface was a missionary to the north. And one of the things that it, he was up in, like the, the upper parts of uh, the Germanic areas, you know, that area, one of the things that he come across in the, the place that he was a mission to, missionary to was this high spell, this high place dedicated to the worship of Thor. And there in the middle of this space was this tree, this giant oak. And it was called the Oak of Thor. And it was thought that whoever cut this tree down, they would be cursed by Thor and that lightning would come and, you know, Thor's lightning would just kill them on the spot. Yep. St. Boniface knew what the scripture said, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And he saw this as a gate to hell because it was a space that wasn't dedicated to the most high God, but an imposter. And so St. Boniface pulled out his ax and he downed the Oak of Thor there in that town. (laughs) And to the surprise of many, 
Thor was unable to strike him down. And so then St. Boniface took the wood from that oak and he crafted a chapel out of that wood. And many of those people who were there that day came to Christ. That's an amazing story. It really is. That's, that's what it looks like to take back pagan space, profane space, and to make it sacred space once again. You know, another, another you know, uh, to connect us back in to the, to the Ireland stuff that we've been talking about, the Celtic stuff, this is one of the things that St. Patrick did. St. Patrick, and many, you know, he was a missionary to Ireland. And one of the things that he did was they, he would see these fairy forts that we talked about in this episode. And there are these high spots, right? These high grounds. If you look at them, they're elevated. They're forts and they're, they're mounds, right? Um, and, you know, the, the fairies are said to live under them. They're literally gates to the underworld, right? Because that was where the, the Tuatha de Danon, that's what they were allotted, right? The underworld right. At, with the covenant with the, the Celts. Uh, so he literally saw them and said, this is a gate to hell. This is a gate to the underworld. And God promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So you know what St. Patrick did? He built churches on them, built cathedrals on them, dedicated to the worship of the most high God. And then you know what they did after that? They put pictures of the green man in their chapels with weird, funny faces on them. You want to know why? Because people were worshiping, you know, these elemental spirits like the green man. And he puts them in there and he, he lowers it. They lower it and put it beneath Christ to show that Christ has dominion over the spirits. Absolutely. You can see that in Roslyn Chapel, you know? Yep. Um, so that's what we do. Another example of this, um, and I actually shared this one on social media not too long ago, but it's, uh, it's actually called the Great Pyramid of, uh, I'm going to butcher this word, I'm sorry. Uh, it's the Great Pyramid of <laughs> C-H-O-L-U-L-A, Chuala. Great Pyramid of Chuala. <laughs> uh, and it's the world's largest man-made period, uh, pyramid. And it was actually dedicated to the worship of a god named Quetzalcoatl, which was an Aztec serpent deity. Immediately draws imagery, right? Right. Uh, serpent deity. And so that's, it's again, it's like the Oak of Thor, right? It's like a fairy mound. It's dedicated, it's dedicated to these, this, this deity, right? It's dedicated, uh, it's high spot to the pagan gods. And guess what? What happened to this spot? You can actually go and find it on, on YouTube. You can find pictures of it. It's the, the Great Pyramid of uh, Cholula. Uh, it's C-H-O-L-U-L-A. Google it. But here's what happened. In the 1500s, Christians came into the area, and they saw, they immediately recognized what this was. They saw that this was profane space. It was a pyramid dedicated to the serpent. Yep. Very, the very same serpent who de deceived the man and the woman in the garden, the same serpent who kept the nations in darkness until the coming of Christ, and they were not willing to allow it to remain outside of the dominion of Christ. They knew that the gospel taught that Christ had crushed the head of the serpent on the cross, that he disarmed the rulers and the principalities over the nations, like we talked about earlier. They knew that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and so rather than abandoning it to the pagans, they took it for the kingdom of God, and they built it on a. They built a chapel on the top of that pyramid, signifying oh. signifying that it had become a holy mountain, 
dedicated to the worship of the one true God, the blessed Trinity. Right. So that's the second way. It's the second way that we, the church, the, how the church can deal with cryptids. We don't allow, we don't allow space to be given and taken to the pagans. I think a lot of times we're willing to just abandon the public square to the pagans. And I think right. that another thing, and this is going to touch on the third point, um, I think that oftentimes we're willing to let time be given to the pagans. How we track time. So, for example, there are many, many well-meaning brothers and sisters out there who think that we should not celebrate things like Halloween, Christmas, you know, all those types of things. That we shouldn't keep what's called the church calendar, the liturgical calendar. And I want to say that that's giving time over to the kingdom of darkness, right? That's, that's relegating time and the way that it's kept. It's giving it to the pagans and abandoning it there. And this was not the way that the church historically dealt with this either. Just as they were willing to rebuke the spirits of the darkness, just so that they were, and as they were willing also to build cathedrals on their holy places, they were also willing to come in and to subvert their holy days, their festivals. I mentioned Samhain earlier. That's what Halloween does, or All Saints Day does. You know, most people think that Halloween, and we're getting closer. We're, we're about to come into August. Right. We're going yeah. to do a whole thing on Halloween uh, during, during Halloween. But to kind of show the cards here a little bit, um, whenever, um, whenever the Christian missionaries came into the Celtic lands, they, uh, they saw that these people were, were sacrificing. Um, well, they knew their stories. Let's just back up. They knew their stories. Right? They knew the mythology. Uh, St. Patrick actually had been taken captive, captive and had been a slave in uh, that land for a long time. And he actually was training, trained by Druid um, for a long part of his life. And then that actually helped him become a major Christian missionary there because he understood the religion there, but he knew the, they knew the lore. They knew the legend. They knew that they had claimed to be people descended from Noah who had been enslaved to the spirit of the giants. And so they come in, they didn't seek to abolish the stuff, but rather to bring the light of the gospel to it. It's not, it's, what's bad is that you're sacrificing your children. What's, what's bad is that you're, you're trying to appease these gods. And what you need to know is the rest of the story, that you have been set free from the spirits of the giants, right? Christ has disarmed the rulers and the principalities. He's crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. And now, and that's what Halloween does, all saints. That's what Halloween, Hall, Halloween is not a pagan holiday contrary to what you may think. Halloween is actually a contraction of All Saints Hallows Eve, which is the evening before All Saints Day. Basically what that's dedicated to is, is remembering the victorious dead, those who died in Christ and who are now a part of the great cloud of witnesses. But it's also more than that. It is to proclaim the dominion of Christ over the spirits, over the spirits of the giants. And that's one of the reasons why, surprisingly, Christians wore masks. Yep. It wasn't because they were afraid of the spirits. 
like the Celts were. Rather, it's because they were shaming them. They were triumphing over them. They were making a mockery of them the same way that Christ had upon the cross. That's a whole different way to tell time. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's the same stuff with Christmas. You know, it's the same thing with a lot of these holidays. Um, They're not, they're not Christianizing pagan holidays. They are the fulfillment of them. I mean, and, and, and most people think, you know, most people are like, but we can't, that's appropriation. We can't do that. We can't Christianize pagan holidays. Well, if you remember a lot of these places to begin with, this is the Irish start actually appropriate our worldview. They actually were appropriating our story, the Noah story, right. the biblical story, the giant story, the sons of God story. They were actually appropriating it. So when Christians came in, they were just telling the rest of the story. You've been set free from these spirits. Christ has conquered them. Don't give, don't, back to Paul in Colossians, right? Don't be deceived by human philosophy. Don't be deceived by the elemental spirits. Christ has put them under his feet. Now celebrate him. So it's also a great missional way to be, a great way to be missional and on mission, right? Um, You know, as, as the pagan next to you is celebrating Samhain, you're celebrating All Saints Day. And then you get to have a conversation on why that happens. And then you get to talk about how Christ has put the spirits that they're trying to appease. And, and let's be, let's be frank here. Modern day pagans aren't, uh, neo-pagans aren't celebrating this the same way that the old pagans were. Uh, right. Neo-paganism is fan fiction. <laughs> it's, it's them just trying to create whatever meaning they can. And they're trying to do it on their own. That there's even the reconstructed versions of it is fanfic. So anyway, but that's uh that's what's going on here it's a great opportunity to be missional whenever your children are 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 wearing masks and the christian uh, something you know the the uptight christian asks you why you're letting you're saying because we're shaming the enemy (laughs) and one of the ways that we can do that is by subverting modern holidays or holy days that's what a holiday is folks it's a holy day We have modern holidays dedicated to secular saints. I won't name them, but you can think of them yourself. I'm, we have listeners from all over. I'm sure that you have your own in your own culture. One of the things that we can do is we can subvert those in the same way that the church subverted the, the pagan holidays before them. We can show that whatever saint it is that they think that they're venerating, whatever their story is, that it can't hold a candle to the story of Christ or whatever spirits they're trying to appease or whatever, we can show that freedom is found in Christ. So I would say that the way that we keep time is the third practical piece of application here, right? I would say if you're not a fan of the church calendar, you should be, <laughs> you should be, uh, you should be. It's, it's not, it's not the Christianization, the Christianization of paganism. It is the subversion of paganism and telling the full story. I refuse, I refuse to abandon time to anyone but Christ. And you as a Christian should refuse to do the same. We should not, we should not seek to give the pagans anything. None of it belongs to them. 
Christ says the earth belongs to him and the fullness thereof. So therefore, let's take it. It belongs to him. That doesn't mean that you have to be crazy, you're rude, you know, whatever. But it means that we have to be faithful. So, Richie, I don't know if you've got anything you want to add to that. Well, no, I'm, I'm good. That was, that was excellent. I felt like I was about to start preaching there. I mean, pretty much. If it's not, get into it. I pretty much did. Okay. Well, I think that that's all that we have for today's episode. So that wraps up this edition of the Sword and Staff. Richie and I are now going to continue this conversation, um, and it's going to be available exclusively to our patrons over at Patreon. So if you'd like to hear the uncut version of this episode, which will continue on after we sign off, make sure to head over to patreon.com backslash sword and staff order. So Richie and I are going to be discussing things related to this topic, such as evidence for the Mothman and the Flatwoods monster, uh, monster, which are Appalachian cryptids. Uh, we think that there's a lot of interesting things going on with these, and we want to talk about that a little bit more. So if you'd like to get on, uh, get into that conversation, head over to Patreon, become a patron. It's the only place where you can get the sword and staff uncut. So we'll be back next week with a chinwag edition of the sword and staff. And the following week, we'll be returning with what will probably be the last episode of our spiritual being series, which will be our final episode on ghosts and spirits and how that fits yep. in. Um, most, I think most Christians, um, I think that their, their tendency is to deny the existence of things like that. And we're going to see in scripture that you probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> we shouldn't be don't. So I guess the advice is don't be a materialist. So Richie, you got anything else to say before we head off? I'm good. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week. All right. Welcome to the Sword and Staff Uncut. Today's episode. Here yeah, here we go. So, Richie, I'm going to be leaning on you a lot on this episode. Um, we've, we've got quite... Set a, me up for failure already. I'm not setting you up for failure. <laughs> um, we, uh, I'm, I'm pulling up some stuff here on the computer. Um, and uh, I want to pull up some of this stuff here that way that we can talk about it. But on today's episode of the Sword and Staff Uncut, Richie and, Richie and I, excuse me, are going to be discussing two Appalachian cryptids, which are fairly famous. At least one of them is really famous. Flatwoods Monster, most people may not know that outside of West Virginia, um, but everybody's heard of them. I mean, after man. Fallout 76, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows about both of them at this point. Yeah, that's that's good. Good. Yeah, it's probably you're probably right there. Uh, the It's definitely, definitely uh, drew a lot of attention back to West Virginia. And to some of this, because Mothman's on there as well. And I've seen yep. a lot of pictures and a lot of stuff that kind of come out of that. So, but on today's episode, we're going to discuss these two cryptids and we're going to talk about some of the phenomena that accompanied the sightings and why there's good evidence of it being legitimate um, and how that should shape. Mm-hmm.